Good morning. This is Alan Carroll at Carroll Pharmacy in Smithfield, and we are proud to bring you Hope for Today, a program we hope might help you, inspire you, or encourage you and give you hope for today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, thou knowest better than I know myself that I am growing older and will someday be old. Keep me from getting talkative and particularly from the fatal habit of thinking I must say something on every subject and on every occasion. Release me from the craving to try and straighten out everybody's affairs. Keep my mind free from the recital of endless details. Give me wings to get to the point. I ask for grace enough to listen to the tales of others' pains. Help me endure them with patience. But seal my lips on my own aches and pains. They are increasing, and my love of rehearsing them is becoming sweeter as the years go by. I dare not ask for improved memory, but for a growing humility and a lessening cocksureness when my memory seems to clash with the memories of others. Teach me the glorious lesson that occasionally I may be mistaken. Keep me reasonably sweet. I do not want to be a saint. Some of them are so hard to live with. But a sorrow woman or man is one of the crowning works of the devil. Make me thoughtful, but not moody. Helpful, but not bossy. With my vast store of wisdom, it seems a pity not to use it. But thou knowest, Lord, I want a few friends at the end. Give me the ability to see good things in unexpected places and talents in unexpected people. And give me, Lord, the grace to tell them so. Welcome back to another edition of Hope for Today. I have just read for you a piece attributed to a 17th century nun who wrote about what we are all doing, and that is getting older every day. I frequently hear comments like, There is nothing golden about the golden years. Old age isn't for sissies. It's better than the alternative, and so on. I had an uncle who, when asked how he was doing, always replied, I'm doing pretty good for my age and condition. How are you doing with your age and condition? Some of you, although still young by today's standards, already have conditions that keep you from living the kind of life you had planned. Maybe you are battling cancer or a lung disease or addiction to alcohol or drugs. Maybe you came back from war after losing an arm or a leg or with the condition of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Maybe you have an eye disease and are afraid you will eventually go blind or that your ability to hear will soon be gone. Maybe you are worried that you will have to move out of your home and go into a nursing home or an assisted living facility or move in with one of your children. Maybe you are afraid your money will give out before you do. Some folks worry that their minds will give out before their bodies do, and others worry that their bodies will give out before their minds. There are countless concerns and anxieties we have, as we consider the undeniable fact that we are all growing older. I ran across these five tips for staying young I'd like to share with you. Number one, your mind is not old. Keep developing it. Number two, your humor is not over. Keep enjoying it. Number three, your strength is not gone. Keep using it. Number four, your opportunities have not vanished. Keep pursuing them. Number five, God is not dead. Keep seeking him. I think the last one is critical to our approach to old age, to keep seeking God. I want to read you a few verses from the book of Psalms, chapter 71. Even when I am old and gray, 
Do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God, you who have done great things. Who, O God, is like you? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once again. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have redeemed. And then I'm going to read to you some of this uh, that Randy Alcorn wrote um, after these verses from Psalms. Like many Psalms, this one contains both complaint and praise. The unknown psalmist speaks on behalf of God's people of all times, declaring that God has done great things, while honestly affirming, You have made me see troubles, many and bitter. Notice he recognizes not merely that bad things have happened, but that his good God had a hand in them. No sooner does God's child say this than he declares his confidence that his destiny lies not in his many bitter troubles, but in God's sovereign and gracious plan for him. You will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once again. He knows that as surely as God is God, his Redeemer will not forsake him. For the God of purpose has written a grand story, and the final glorious chapter, one that will never end, has not yet been acted out on earth's stage. Psalm 71 joins countless scriptures in assuming the truth revealed in Romans 8.28, that God will, in the end, bring a magnificent outcome to what now, at times, seems dismally bitter. There is an all-inclusive in the all things of Romans 8.28. No translation says each thing by itself is good, but that all things work together for good, and not on their own, but under God's sovereign hand. Romans 8.28 declares a cumulative and ultimate good, not an individual or immediate good. This is from Randy Alcorn's book, 90 Days of God's Goodness. And he goes on to say that before his mother would make a cake, she used to lay the ingredients on the kitchen counter. One day, I decided to experiment. I tasted the individual ingredients for a chocolate cake. Baking powder, baking soda, raw eggs, vanilla extract. I discovered that almost everything that goes into a cake tastes terrible by itself. But a remarkable metamorphosis took place when my mother mixed the ingredients in the right amounts and baked them together. The cake tasted delicious. Yet judging by the taste of each component, I never would have believed cake could taste so good. In a similar way, the individual ingredients of trials and apparent tragedies taste bitter to us. Romans 8.28 doesn't tell me I should say it is good if my leg breaks or my house burns down or I'm robbed and beaten or my child dies. But no matter how bitter the taste of the individual components, God can carefully measure out and mix all ingredients together and regulate the temperature in order to produce a wonderful final product. When Paul says, for the good, he clearly implies final or ultimate good not good subjectively felt in the midst of our sufferings. As his wife Joy underwent cancer treatments, C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend, We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. 
Then I want to read you this from Oswald Chambers' book, My Utmost for His Highest. Hang on to the fact that he will ultimately give you clear understanding and will fully justify himself in everything that he has allowed into your life. Now, you got to understand that understanding may not be clear to you until after you have gotten to heaven. So anyway, um, I just thought I'd read you that from Alcorn's book. And from Isaiah chapter 46, verses 3 and 4, I have created you and cared for you since you were born. I will be your God through all your lifetime. Yes, even when your hair is white with age, I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and be your Savior. In his devotional book, The Way, E. Stanley Jones has this to say about old age. We must look particularly at old age. There should be training courses in how to grow old gracefully and happily. We have training courses in how to grow up, but not in how to grow old. They say you are as old as your arteries. Better, you are as old as your mind, and your mind never need grow old. Unlike the flesh, the spirit does not decay with years. Many of the happiest men and women in the world are those in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, happiest and most useful. An old Quaker, 82, with a beautiful face said, I am going to live till I die, and then I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live till I die. Can we keep on living abundantly and creatively till we die, no matter at what age? Yes. Dr. Martin Gumpert, in his book, You Are Younger Than You Think, says, Idleness is the greatest enemy of the aged and presents them with their ticket to death. Sophocles wrote his famous Philoctetes at age 87. Michelangelo was writing poetry and designing buildings up to the time of his death at 90. Gladstone, Prime Minister of England, was Prime Minister at 83, and he fought the greatest battle of his life then for the passage of a Home Rule Bill. Goff completed Faust, his greatest work, at the age of 81. Ronald Reagan wasn't elected to public office until he was 55. I'm just adding this. This is not in E. Stanley Jones's work, but this is some stuff I found in another place. Ronald Reagan wasn't elected to public office until he was 55. In 1966, he won California's gubernatorial race by one million votes. Grandma Moses didn't even pick up a paintbrush until she was in her eighth decade. She cranked out her first canvas at age 76 and painted for the next 25 years, long enough to see her canvases that she had sold originally for $3 now fetch more than $10,000. Laura Ingalls Wilder, author of the series Little House on the Prairie, didn't publish her first novel until she was 65. Harlan Sanders didn't become a chicken mogul, the one that we know and love, until he was 65. By the time he sold the business 12 years later, there were 900 Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises across this country. Benjamin Franklin was one of the framers of the Constitution at the age of 81. Chaucer was age 60 when he wrote Canterbury Tales. Clara Barton founded the Red Cross at 61. And then back to E. Stanley Jones. You are younger than you think. And then I want to read you this little prayer he has here at the end. Oh God, help me to grow old gracefully and beautifully and creatively. Give me the strength and will to bring forth fruit even to old age. May I know in thee the deathless life and be unafraid of getting old. May I greet it with a song. Amen. Charles Spurgeon says, Let us trust in the Lord and keep his way, and he will take care of us. 
Here is a poem that appears in Spurgeon's devotional book, Morning by Morning. God is God. He sees and hears all our troubles, all our tears. Soul, forget not mid thy pains. God o'er all forever reigns. Fear not death, nor Satan's thrust. God defends who in him trusts. Soul, remember in thy pains. God o'er all forever reigns. For this life's long night of sadness, he will give us peace and gladness. Soul, remember in thy pains. God o'er all forever reigns. In preparing this morning's program, one verse I kept coming back to over and over was 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In his devotional book, Faith's Checkbook, Spurgeon has this to say about that verse. This is a precious word from our Lord. God's grace is enough for me. I should think so. Is not the sky enough for the bird and the ocean enough for the fish? He who is sufficient for earth and heaven is certainly able to meet the case of one poor worm like me. Let us then fall back upon our God and his grace. If he does not remove our grief, he will enable us to bear it. His strength shall be poured into us till a nothing shall be victor over all the high and mighty ones. It is better for us to have God's strength than our own. For if we were a thousand times as strong as we are, it would amount to nothing in the face of the enemy. And if we could be weaker than we are, which is scarcely possible, yet we could do all things through Christ. I love these verses from Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. It is a wonderful thing to be alive. If a person lives to be very old, let him rejoice in every day of life, but let him also remember that eternity is far longer and that everything down here is futile in comparison. One of my very favorite devotional readings from Charles Spurgeon is found in his Evening by Evening book. And this is it, and it's from the September 20th readings part of it. The evening of life also has its calls. Life is so short that a morning of manhood's strength and an evening of decay make up the whole of it. To some it seems long, but a dollar is a great sum of money to a poor man. Life is so brief that no man can afford to lose a day. It has been well said that if a great king were to bring us a heap of gold, and bid us take as much as we could count in a day, we would make a long day of it. We would begin early in the morning, and in the evening we would not withhold our hand. Winning souls is far nobler work. So how is it that we quit so soon? Some are spared to a long evening of green old age. If such is my case, let me use any talents I still retain and serve my blessed and faithful Lord to the final hour. By his grace, I will die with my boots on and lay down my commission only when I lay down my body. Age may instruct the young, cheer the faint, and encourage the despondent. If evening has less stifling heat, it should have more calm wisdom. Therefore, in the evening, I will not withhold my hand. So I think we can all recognize that we are expected to continue working in God's kingdom as long as we can. We may retire from our secular jobs, but as long as we are able, we should not retire from kingdom work. Remember, the benefits of kingdom work are out of this world. And I want to read you part of um, Spurgeon's evening by evening devotional in, um, from February 7th. We are not called down to the grave, but up to the skies. 
Our heaven-born spirits should long for their native air, yet the heavenly summons should be the object of patient waiting. Our God knows best when to bid us come up here. We must not wish to hasten the period of our departure. But patience must have her perfect work. God ordains with accurate wisdom the most fitting time for the redeemed to live below. Surely, if there could be regrets in heaven, the saints might mourn that they did not live longer here to do more good. Oh, for more sheaves for my Lord's harvest, more jewels for his crown. But how, unless there be more work? True, there is the other side of it, that living so briefly, our sins are the fewer. But oh, when we are fully serving God, and he is asking us to scatter precious seed and reap a hundredfold, we would even say it is well for us to stay where we are. Whether our masters shall say go or stay, let us be equally well pleased as long as he indulges us with his presence. Spurgeon goes on to say, Let your care and wish be to glorify God by your life here as long as he pleases, even though it is in the midst of toil, conflict, and suffering, and leave it to him to say when it is enough. It was in the midst of conflict in his life that John Newton came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I would like to share some of his story with you from the one-year Christian history book by Michael and Sharon Rustin. John Newton spent most of his early life at sea. The son of a merchant ship commander, midshipman of the British Navy, and a master of a slave ship, Newton knew the waters better than the shore at the age of 23. It was a great storm at sea that the Lord used as a beacon to cut through the darkness that had characterized Newton's early life. From that point on, John Newton spent his life in the service of God, eventually becoming an Anglican clergyman and the author of many hymns, including Amazing Grace. John Newton's final year was analogous to the setting of the sun. He had gradually lost his hearing and sight, and he could no longer recognize some of his closest friends. He declined to the point where he could not walk unaided. In his closing months, Newton clung to the truths he had spent years preaching from the pulpit and conveying through his writings. In his final month, Newton summarized the sufficiency of his failing mental faculties with these words, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. In spite of his decline, Newton was able to describe the approaching end of his earthly life with great insight and anticipation. He said, I am like a person going on a journey in a stagecoach who expects its arrival every hour and is frequently looking out the window for it. In another conversation, Newton said, It is a great thing to die, and when flesh and heart fail to have God for the strength of our heart and our portion forever, I know whom I have believed and he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that great day. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. On the Wednesday before his death, when someone asked him how he was doing, he replied, I am satisfied with the Lord's will. John Newton's final sunset came on Monday, December 21, 1807, when he died at the age of 83. He was buried in his church of St. Mary Woolnoth next to his wife Mary and niece, Ms. Eliza Cunningham. Newton wrote his own epitaph, which is engraved on a plain marble tablet in the church, and I'm going to read to you part of that epitaph. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, 
was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. In the reflection section of this piece, this devotional, I want to read you this. As John Newton's memory began to fail him in old age, two thoughts remained as the foundation of his faith, that he was a great sinner and that Jesus was a great Savior. What thoughts would you want to characterize the end of your life? Then I want to read you this uh, from Romans 4, 6 through 8. King David spoke of this, describing the happiness of an undeserving sinner who is declared to be righteous. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose sin is no longer countered against them by the Lord. I know what I have been sharing with you today has been pretty much for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who know where we will be going when our physical life here on earth is over, which gives us a wonderful peace and a blessed assurance. But there may be some of you who are not sure if you're going to heaven or hell, and others of you who are pretty sure you are on your way to hell. And for those of you in the last two categories, here is your hope for today. And it is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that is the good news. Whether you are young or middle-aged or whether you have one foot in the grave, you can make the decision today whether to accept Jesus or not. The choice is yours. Do you need to make that decision today? Listen to what Billy Graham has to say in his devotional book, Hope for Each Day. Preparing for heaven is much like going on a journey. First, you must decide you want to go there. Next, you must purchase your ticket. But wait, how will you purchase it? Can you buy it by being a good person or going to church or acting religious or giving money or volunteering your time to help others? The Bible says none of these will suffice because the ticket to heaven is expensive far too expensive for any human being to afford. Does that mean we can never go there? No. And the reason is because someone else has already purchased the ticket for us. That person was Jesus Christ, and the price he paid was his own blood, shed on the cross for us. Now he offers us the ticket to heaven free and fully paid. Why refuse it? Why try some other way? Jesus' invitation is still open. Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So, whatever season of life you are in, I want to ask you this most important question that Jesus asked each of us, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 15. Who do you say I am? Randy Alcorn says that if we get it right about Jesus, we can afford to get some minor things wrong. But if we get it wrong about Jesus, it won't matter in the end what else we get right. Listen to these words from the hymn, In Times Like These. In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. In times like these, you need the Bible. In times like these, oh, be not idle. Be very sure. Be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. In times like these, I have a Savior. In times like these, I have an anchor. I'm very sure. I'm very sure my anchor holds and grips the solid rock. 
This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure. Be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Whatever else, hang on to that anchor. Whatever else, hold fast to him. In closing, I leave you with this verse from the Apostle Paul found in Romans 15, 13. May God, who gives you hope, keep you happy and full of peace as you believe in him. I pray that God will help you overflow with hope in him through the Holy Spirit's power within you. Thank you for listening. In times like these You need a Savior In times like these You need an anchor Be very sure Be very sure And grips the solid.
to Hope for Today, brought to you each Sunday morning by Carol Pharmacy. We hope the message today has helped and encouraged you. If we can ever help you with your prescriptions, over-the-counter medications, or vaccines, we hope you will come in to our family-owned and operated independent pharmacy, where outstanding customer service is our goal. 